Finnovate showcases cutting-edge banking and financial technology through a global conference series featuring short-form demos and thought leadership. Now, the conversation continues on the Finnovate podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Finnovate podcast. Joining me today, we have Nick Christian, head of fintech and specialty finance at Silicon Valley Bank. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to connect with me. Thank you for having me. So we had the opportunity to get to learn a little bit about what's been going on at Silicon Valley Bank through your participation at Finnovate Spring and Finnovate Fall this year, which has been great, by the way. Um, But for people who uh, haven't really been staying up to date on all things SVB, can you start by just taking 60 seconds or so, giving us some background on yourself and your role before we jump in a little bit more? Sure. Um, I'm going on 16 years at at Silicon Valley Bank, Um, held held a variety of roles, mostly on the lending side, um, and just recently took over as the head of, of FinTech and specialty finance. Uh, encompass and that is the relationship management side as well as majority of the lending that we we do in the sector. Cool. And so we're going to be talking today about a new report that you all are releasing, which has some really interesting pieces, some high-level fintech trends and things like that. Before we get into that report, though, um, I just wanted to to check and you know get your sense what's what's happening right now with SVB or any major updates or pieces that you'd like to share with our audience. Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a great question. I mean, you you still see a lot of press out there, or, or you hear things that may be a little bit misguided. So, I mean, at the surface, SUV never left. I mean, for Q2, we had over 100 new loans and over a billion dollars in commitment. Um, so we've been been doing the same things we've been doing for for 40 years. Um, we actually launched our our new ad campaign at Finnovate, uh, the Yes SVB campaign. Um, it, it kind of highlight our commitment or our recommitment to uh, the innovation economy. Um, so very excited about that, and it uh, it has been great working with First Citizens team and the the Fortress balance sheet that that comes along with that, and so we couldn't be more primed to continue to execute on our mission. Yeah, and I think that's one of those things where you know a lot of the buzz around the event in New York a, a couple of months ago, um, around you know the San Francisco event as well. Um, Silicon Valley Bank plays such a crucial role in the innovation ecosystem, and, and I think it's just terrific that you're you know able to come to events like Finnovate and support and, and make sure that people know, yeah, SVB is still there. Not to paraphrase your your new campaign, I should have said yes. My apologies, um, but I want to turn our attention now towards uh, this report um, that you you just released because there are a lot of interesting findings, and, and I'd encourage anyone listening to this to download and read the full thing. But um, I'll do my best to kind of pull out a couple of key takeaways that I think are especially interesting. Um, I think, you know, a lot's been made about the cash crunch, but your report's findings show that early stage companies are actually pretty resilient and that Series A valuations have actually gone up 83% since 2020. Um, what do you think accounts for that potentially surprising fact? Yeah, I think I think the main piece is that the banks are primed to be disrupted, right? It's, um, it's a value prop that's easy for investors and consumers to understand. You know, we've we've had the trend of unbundling the bank going on for a while. Uh, we've seen a lot of fintechs pop up in different areas to serve um, what I'd say are traditional banks products uh, to to various customers. Um, so that's that's one piece of it. Uh, the other piece of it is that it's, there, there's some of it's an order of magnitude uh, in terms of uh, where these Series A valuations are. And what I mean by that is, yes, Series A valuations went from from 25 million to to 46 million, you know, roughly doubling. 
but if there's a mispricing in there, there's still time to bridge that gap. Um, meaning that the order of magnitude isn't so far that a company can't course correct uh, and kind of grow into or kind of reestablish a new valuation. Much tougher to do that at the later stages where the, you know, the dollars are much larger um, and the companies are much larger and it's a little bit tougher to course correct. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. And that's something which, you know, you don't necessarily hear a lot about inside the ecosystem, this idea that, you know, it's it's actually, I don't want to say it's okay to to get it wrong, but it's maybe you get punished less if you slightly overvalue in the early stages than you do in the later stages. Um, what do you think about, you know, uh, the, the rest of the kind of findings around valuations? Are, are there any other pieces that were particularly noteworthy that kind of caught your eye? Look, I think if you look across kind of all the stages, they, the valuations are all down from their their 2022 highs, and you know for series being later, they're they're kind of more aligned with their historical norms, call it 2019, 2020. Whereas the early stages have continued to be the outlier. The other thing that stood out to me is just kind of the valuation premium that that fintechs command, and that's across kind of all stages, that seed all the way through kind of late stage investments. Um, and I think that speaks to just the opportunity that exists within the segment. Again, this trend of unbundling the bank or finding new ways to deliver conventional bank products uh, to consumers. Yeah, yeah, I think you know that, that's a really interesting piece as well. And I think you talked you know, before we actually push record here, you were talking about kind of the difference in how early stage investors operate and receive their return on investment versus how later stage investors um, kind of operate and, and it's a slightly different process for them. Can you talk a little bit about that piece? Because I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, typically, and it's not the case for everybody, but typically, you know, investors that are investing at the seed and Series A have smaller funds, and and that allows them to do a couple of things. It allows them primarily to be to be nimble and really optimize for for a client's needs. Um, the other thing is that they're not having to invest too much into these businesses and therefore forcing these companies maybe to, to to adapt a growth at all cost mindset. And so at the early stages, these companies are now getting to revenue probably sooner than they have uh, historically, but they're also doing it in a manner that's you know judicious, meaning that they're they're not growing at all costs and their expenses align much closer with with revenues and allowing them to kind of get to cash flow positive operations in the future sooner than they otherwise would have. I think that focus on getting to cash flow positive, that's something that we've been hearing a lot from the venture capitalists who have been coming on the show. Um, and certainly I think there's some positives that come from that. Um, I think one thing that's really important though for anybody who's taking VC funding to understand is you know, really look at the difference between the types of venture capital groups that are out there, whether they invest in early stage or late stage, but you know, every VC is gonna be looking for something obviously. And it's really important to understand what their priorities are as you consider doing business with them, because so much of that can uh, have a major role on the long-term health and success of, of a company. Um, I want to switch gears and you know, come back up to another really interesting piece that the report was talking about. Um, you know, it's interesting to see that payments continues to be the top valued fintech subsector 
Um, not necessarily surprising. You know, it's been up at the top for the last couple of years now. Potentially, you know, a lot of this comes from the rise of embedded payments. But um, are there other areas that you think are closing the gap that are potentially going to be seen someday as a you know at that level of valuation? Or um, do you think payments will kind of continue to be the, in the top spot for the next little bit? I think payments will definitely continue to be the top value fintech sector. Um, and, and this will continue to think for the point you're making uh, because of the, the shift toward embedded finance. I mean, if you just look, I mean, the, the, the embedded finance market is projected to be a $7 trillion industry by 2026. And so that's going to continue to drive payments um, from a valuation standpoint. The other area that I think you know, we should keep an eye on is I'd say fraud and compliance. And so we just talked about payments and kind of how, how valuable those are. Um, but what we're seeing is the volume and velocity of payments continues to increase. And as that continues to happen, it's going to drive an increased need for improved fraud monitoring and compliance. Um, you know, what the margin for error in terms of processing this payments is getting smaller and smaller kind of as that velocity continues to increase. Yeah, I just want to come back to the stat that you just talked about. By 2026, um, the, obviously the payments ecosystem is is set to be massive, but I didn't realize you know it was gonna it was projected to be that massive. Can you talk a little bit about you know kind of where this growth is coming from and and why it's an area? I mean, obviously it's it's, it's in some sense I guess it's kind of simple, but you know payments is where people actually put their money to work for them, right? This is how you actually move money from place to place. But still, I think most people's initial response wouldn't be to think that it was that big of an industry. Yeah, I mean, like over half of that is just on consumer payments. And so, you know, you may not you may not realize it, but you're you're involved in this this payment flow at some point as a consumer, right? I mean, take some of the, the apps you use every day, Uber, right? You're making a payment through the Uber app. That payment needs to get needs to get processed. Um, and so you're seeing that across all of these different consumer businesses that weren't there historically. And so that's what's really driving uh, the growth uh, on, on the embedded finance side. And one of the things that's really interesting as well is the idea that you know, all these companies like Uber are now owning the payments process, right? And so, so much of your overall customer satisfaction will come from how smooth that process is. If you get into an Uber and you have a you know, perfectly smooth ride to the airport or whatnot, and everything is fine, and then all of a sudden you end up dealing with a payment issue, you have to email customer service or things like that. Ultimately, that issue is what you will remember. You won't remember the actual product. You'll only remember the difficulty that you had with actually completing the payment side of it. And so it's interesting that so many consumer brands are kind of taking ownership of that process, obviously with partners who are able to, to do things for them. But you know, at the end of the day, the consumer doesn't see those partners. They don't see the back end. They just see the company whose logo is on the app. And so I think it's an area where there's so much pressure, so much uh, high stakes to get everything exactly right. I think you're right. It's going to continue to balloon as more companies realize that this is such a crucial area that they have to focus on. I think you make a great point there in terms of taking ownership of the payment flows. You know, what that what that really has done for, for them is, one, it gives them a little bit more control, but two, I mean, it's it's actually another revenue stream that they haven't had historically. Right? They are they're finding a way to kind of get in and get a piece of get a piece of the interchange for historically that would have just kind of evaded them. And so um, it's becoming more and more of a focus for these companies because they kind of see the value that inherently comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think you're right. And at the, the, anywhere there's revenue, there's going to be people who will help you get in there. Right. So that's what the fintech ecosystem is all about. 
Um, switching gears again, because there's another really interesting piece that uh, was brought up by the report, which definitely caught me by surprise. But uh, the report focused on blockchain technologies and suggested that there are signs we may be out, we may be about to enter an upswing or you know a resurgence, if you will, around blockchain technology. Um, first off, did that surprise you as much as it surprised me? And second off, where do you think that's potentially coming from? Yeah, certainly surprising. I mean, again, you can you can kind of point to negative press all over the sector. Um, you know, you don't need to look very far. Uh, FTX was was obviously one of the larger ones, and that made a bunch of bunch of, bunch of headlines. And so, when you're looking at, well, is this is this really kind of sector on the upswing? Um, that was that was a little shocking. But I think I think the one thing that's important to to kind of differentiate for folks is kind of the difference between crypto cryptocurrencies and blockchain and the application of blockchain technologies extend well beyond just cryptocurrencies, which is kind of really driving this overall trend. Yeah, yeah, and no, I think it's it's one of those things too, where you know people in my family who know what I do for a living um, love to tell me about how cryptocurrency is down, and you know I get links from family members talking about you know this is it's all a big scam and NFTs are a scam, and I'm not gonna spend a ton of time arguing against that one, but I always try and explain to them that you know that's one application for this technology. And there's certainly quite a few others. You know, one of the pieces that we talked about a little bit as well was the idea that it could be very useful in international trade um, or things where you have a lot of logistics, you know, supply chain issues, for example, could potentially um, be uh, remedied or solved by blockchain technology. Where do you see kind of the, the biggest potential application for technology that relies on a blockchain that's outside of that cryptocurrency space? Look, you know, I think we just talked about payments, and there's a lot of there's a lot of value in payment flows, and I I think you know what we're seeing here is a lot of investors hedging their bets with investments in blockchain, and so I'm not saying that I, I think there'll be a bankless future, but the way money and information will move is going to change, and I think a lot of that's going to be driven by blockchain technologies. And you can think about just some of the use cases, like even even FedNow, which you know just kind of went live, right? You're getting closer and closer to um, that moving on to um, a blockchain, right? So that banks are able to communicate with each other quicker, more efficiently than, you know, whether whether it be kind of the Fedwire network or or you know, whatever it may be. It's it's kind of getting that technology into the financial system. And so that you're kind of removing friction. And so you talked about supply chain. That's another great one, right? When you're trying to move money from, say, the U.S. to, I don't know, Singapore to, to pay for your invoice, not only is that piece difficult, but the invoice isn't digitized. There's no kind of central source for that that information to allow it to flow quickly and easily. And so I think you're going to see a number of these areas start to be disrupted that have historically been serviced by legacy technologies. And by legacy technologies, in some instances, I mean pen and paper. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're going to, it is technology, right? We don't think of it in that way, but there is a shocking amount um, that is still done, pen and paper, still done in Excel, right? Um, still done through very manual processes that that could all stand to be uh, modernized and, and um, improved dramatically. Um, well, you know, we've really only just been able to scratch the surface. Again, I would encourage anybody to uh, click on the link in the show description and get the report, see the full piece. You know, there's a lot more uh, that that's in there than we were able to talk about today. Um, there's, you know, themes to watch. There's uh, capital benchmarks, some interesting profiles on specific companies. 
um, who have been going through some major newsworthy events. So uh, a lot to unpack. I think it's worth a well, uh, well worth a read for everybody. Um, again, I've been talking with Nick Christian, head of fintech and specialty finance at Silicon Valley Bank. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me and to give our listeners a teaser of the report coming out. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, look forward to people hopefully getting some value out of the report. The Finnovate podcast is produced by Informa Connect in association with Provoke.fm Media. Check out Finnovate.com for information on Finnovate's upcoming shows and to learn how you can get involved. The discount code Finnovate Podcast will save you 20% on tickets to all of our events. And you can email us at info at for information on sponsoring, speaking, or demoing. Thanks for listening.